there's a distrust of institutions in general that we've seen in the United States and other Western societies since about the 1960s. And then there's the, uh, talking about McNamara, this kind of culture of managerialism that says that to be a manager, you don't really need depth of knowledge of a particular field or particular business. You just need to have mastery of a certain number of techniques. And those techniques are typically metric techniques of measuring. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. Most of you know the quote, if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. It's often attributed, although incorrectly, to the famous 19th century physicist, Lord Kelvin. Wherever it came from, it sounds about right. Same goes for this familiar quote from a popular business book author, what gets measured gets done. Well, in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about what's getting measured and what's actually getting done. What's getting measured in medicine are thousands of performance and quality indicators. What's actually getting done is docking our medical system billions of dollars every year in costs and lost productivity. Okay, nothing new to any of you out there. But what if this metric fixation is doing more than just wasting time and money? Used correctly, metrics and big data analysis offer incredible promise for research, visibility, and improvement. We've talked about it on this show. Used incorrectly, however, they can steer us off course, devalue professional judgment, manipulate, encourage fraud, and possibly cause real harm to physicians, hospitals, and patients. If you're a regular listener, you know every so often we like to venture outside the medical tent for some different perspectives. That's certainly true of today's guest, historian Jerry Mueller. Author of many books and a regular contributor to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs, his recent book, The Tyranny of Metrics, arose from his initial frustrations with metric fixation in higher education. As he dug deeper, he soon realized these fixations weren't limited to universities, and they weren't new. They were already prevalent in business, law enforcement, military, philanthropy, and, of course, medicine. What he found was a growing obsession with rankings, scores, and a belief that all aspects of human performance and judgment can ultimately be deconstructed, demystified, and quantified. This is a cool conversation with a rare thinker and accomplished scholar. We think we're going to enjoy it. So with that said, let's get started. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for carving out some time with us. We're, we're really excited to dig into this today. I look forward to speaking with you. Well, Jerry, I finished your book actually just a couple weeks ago, and I actually sent you an email the day afterwards because I enjoyed it so much, and I thought, i got to reach out to you and see if you might want to jump on. So thanks for joining us. Um, just curious, uh, probably a question you get a lot, you're a professor of history at the Catholic University of America, and this is not a, uh, on the surface an expected topic for you to jump into. Tell us how you started to uh, see this or realize this problem, and then why you wanted to take this on in a book. Well, I had long-term interests in uh, public policy issues, and I'd written a book actually about Adam Smith as a kind of public policy analyst, mm. and I had... Uh, long-term interests in the history of capitalism and how intellectuals have thought about capitalism. And one of the recurrent issues that came up is a kind of spillover effect of thinking that uh, ways of thinking that are applicable in the market or in profit-making enterprises uh, ought to be applied to all other areas of life. Uh, so those were sort of, sort of deep background issues. Uh, and then I had my one experience of being a manager in my adult life <laughs> when I became the chair of my department. Uh, 
And I did that for a number of years. Uh, there were a number of aspects of it that were new to me, but that I found I was quite good at hiring new faculty members, which is one of the most important things you can do, and fostering and mentoring existing staff and making sure the right courses are taught and all that sort of thing. All that were duties, all of those were duties that came along with the job. But then at a certain point, there were requests from the school administration for more and more data uh, mm -hmm. and more and more statistics. And I noticed that a lot of that data uh, was time consuming to accumulate. Uh, my administrative assistant and myself and other department members had to put more and more time into this. And I also noticed that a great deal of it was useless, uh, that no one was actually uh, going to use it. And when I asked the provost, why are we doing this? He said, I don't, why, why are we gathering all this data? He said, you know, I don't really know, but the, <laughs> the Middle States Association, which accredits us, wants it. And then I started to draw back the threads. Why did the Middle States Association of Universities want this? And it was because the Department of Education demanded it. And okay. why did the Department of Education demand it? Because under the George W. Bush administration, there was a person in the Department of Education, uh, Margaret Spellings, who was one of the people behind No Child Left Behind, which was a big attempt at metricization of education. And they wanted more and more data from universities under the rubric of accountability. This is what was going to bring about accountability. And then I asked myself, why, why were people in the federal government so interested in this process of uh, getting this data and rewarding and making it transparent and rewarding and punishing institutions accordingly? And then I found it was part of a much wider pattern in organizational life. Uh, and uh, then I asked myself, where was that coming from? And it turned out it was coming from business schools and consultants and so on. So my, my immediate experience of dissatisfaction with my own, uh, in my own professional life led me to use my academic background and to do a lot of reading and investigation to think more broadly of it. And once I did start to think more broadly about it and start to talk to, about this issue to members of my family and friends in a wide variety of fields in, in education, in medicine, in government, I saw that actually the kinds of problems and patterns that I was dealing with were sort of omnipresent and people were experiencing the frustrations that came with what I came to call metric fixation in, their, in a wide range of organizations without necessarily realizing how sort of trans-organizational and omnipresent this pattern was. So that's briefly how I got into it. Well, we're going to get into a lot of that because a lot of our listeners are going to be very familiar with the frustrations you have, especially in the world of medicine. The government's very involved to, there, too, and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to measure things. And there's, there's good intent behind this, too. We'll talk about that as well. But just before we get going, I mean, what kind of metrics were they asking of you as chair of the Department of History? What were questions being asked? What, was this for budget? Was this for hiring new faculty members? What do they want? Uh, in, the, in the first instance, it, it was supposed to be a kind of quality control. Uh, later on, it was used in terms of budget and hiring new faculty members uh, uh, in ways that were particularly uh, distortive and pernicious. But in the first case, they wanted things like uh, data on how each of our, how our seniors did 
from year to year. So we had a system for this. Every senior had to write a senior thesis, and that senior thesis got a grade. And uh, and that was our way of, um, of measuring how our seniors were doing. Now they had these standard categories that each of the uh, evaluations had to fit into. There were one of four categories and, and so on. And it wasn't any kind of improvement over our grades. It just required more time to accumulate. And again, uh, it, it didn't change that much actually from year to year, and even if it did, nobody was paying attention. So it, it was a form. <laughs> it was a form of additional data that was superfluous. Uh, and uh, as I later learned, that's true in many other fields as well. I, I, you know, I thought about this a bit because I'm a history major myself. So uh-huh. as I know, and you know as well, a lot of us go on to many different things in life that aren't necessarily, you know, becoming historians, but. I've always felt that, that <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, I mean, I've always felt that the education I got in history prepared me f- for a type of thinking that you don't always get elsewhere. And I don't know that that's an easy thing to measure. Um, mm-hmm. And if you were to look beyond college and see salary data and job history, I think that's, I want to believe that's actually still connected to my undergraduate studies, but I don't know that you can make a direct link to that. So I don't know what they were hoping to measure overall, but uh, it's... I imagine it was very frustrating. I could see why yes. this sparked your interest. Um, speaking of history, you, you kind of go back a little bit. You talk about Winslow Taylor, an American engineer who started the idea of scientific management. A lot of these ideas come from business. Just take us through a quick history lesson here, you know, before we talk about all the frustrations we have with this. Where did all this come from? Well, it comes from uh, there's a lot of history to it, and there's a lot of source, and there's a lot of. Um, background factors that led into its increasing uh, salience. Uh, The notion that you should measure and then reward and punishment, uh, reward and punish in the field of education, say, goes back at least to the 19th century when a a British parliamentarian by the name of Robert Lowe decided to to try to institute this in the British educational system. Uh, Eventually, it was uh, it was rejected. Uh, I mean, they tried it for a number of decades and it didn't work. That is, they were going to test each student in terms of their uh, reading and math ability, and then they were going to uh, reward and punish schools accordingly. But then the idea, the idea of uh, measuring, rewarding, and punishment punishing, as you say, goes back to uh, to, to Frederick Taylor, this uh, industrial engineer at the beginning of the 20th century who tried to apply this to uh, manufacturing and industrial processes. And in some ways, what happened in the course of the 20th century was the attempt to apply that to what we call the service sector, which is where more and more of us work. Uh, and then a key figure in, in making this ever more salient in the world of business schools and consulting and then organizations was Robert McNamara, who was a young uh, professor of accounting at Harvard University, who in the early 1950s uh, went to work for the Ford Motor Company and later under Johnson. Uh, President Johnson became the Secretary of Defense. He's most famous I sp- or infamous, I suppose, nowadays for the idea of body counts, yeah. which was essentially a, a system of metrics. That is to say, how are you going to figure out how well the American armed forces were doing uh, against the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese? Well, you were going to count the number of uh, bodies 
of the enemy that had been killed, and uh, you were going to compare that to your own, then you would that would be one of the measures of success. Turned out to be fallacious and 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 uh, and actually consume a lot of lives in the process. Uh, and then in the and then he went on to uh, a leading position at the Ford Foundation and then at the World Bank, uh, and. Uh, from business schools through consultants. Not to mention, by the way, he was uh, measuring a lot of things that didn't come out until they were leaked later, right, in the Pentagon Papers, but that's a whole other story. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but for example, as an example of the un, of the overlooked costs of uh, metric measurement, uh, you know, so American soldiers would be sent out to count the bodies. And in the process, some of them were shot and killed. Uh, which didn't yeah. work its way into the metrics. Plus, of course, there's the fact that it turned out that break that what really counts in in war is the will of the enemy, and killing a lot of them uh, wasn't uh, sufficient to break their will. But that wasn't something that McNamara could particularly count. Uh, but anyway, it, it then made its way into it became ever more present in in business schools. Uh, some of it was supported by this notion of the principal agent problem that question was how were stockholders in the first instance going to make sure that they're who are considered to be the principals how are they going to make sure that their agents that is the executives in the company were trying to carry out the purposes of the stockholders and not the purposes of the agents and this led to a wider range of thinking that says you can't really trust people in organizations, and so you have to figure out ways of measuring and monitoring what they do, or you rather you monitor in order to measure, and then you should reward and punish them based on those measures. Uh, so, and and uh, that then made its way into an ever wider range of organizations, including uh, the government in um, in the in. Great Britain and then in the United States, and it's increasingly used uh, under the rubric of new public management in governments uh, around the world. And then, of course, it made its way into education and higher education and uh, medicine and uh, policing. And nowadays, it's a big deal in philanthropy as well. Yeah. So, so the question is, um, we're, we're collecting, you know, more and more people are collecting metrics and there's more and more metrics, more and more data being collected. Is it getting more sophisticated how we're asking the questions and what is being collected? Or are we just trying to find other ways to, to get more numbers thinking that we'll, we'll reach a critical mass where we have so much data that the answer will be there? Yeah. So, this goes into the question of, um, you know, the motives, uh, the ongoing motives leading to this. And part of it has to do with uh, fear of bias, uh, either fear of prejudice, you know, that the individual executive or teacher or doctor or whatever is prejudiced, and that might be the case. There's also this huge burgeoning scientific literature of behavioral uh, economics that has to do with various biases that, that we have. So there's this whole notion that that uh, pe people's judgment is bad. So you shouldn't depend on their judgment. You should depend on some objective, measurable mm -hmm. thing. And then there's a, there's a distrust of institutions in general that we've seen in the United States and other Western societies since about the 1960s. 
and then there's the there's what I, I've already sort of alluded to this um, uh, talking about McNamara, this kind of culture of managerialism that says that uh, to be a manager, you don't really need depth of knowledge of a particular field or particular business. You just need to have mastery of a certain number of techniques, and those techniques are typically metric techniques of measuring. And then there's the issue that you've alluded to, and that is changes in technology that make it possible to gather more data. Uh, you know, uh, uh, electronic technology, uh, the whole existence of spreadsheets, uh, which makes it possible to, you know, display data, makes people think that what they see on the spreadsheet is what actually is going on in the business or the or the hospital or whatever. Uh, and and of course, there are lots of people who are in the business of selling the gate, the gathering and analysis of data. And they're always assuring us that more and more data is available. And if we only gathered enough of it, uh, it would be more and more useful. And if, don't get me wrong, sometimes it is genuinely useful, uh, just as a spreadsheet can be genuinely useful. But there is this kind of uh, psychological imperative and cultural imperative and economic imp felt economic imperative that you have to gather more and more data. And sometimes the notion is that having more and more data is itself going to give you the answers, whereas often the most important questions are, uh, what are we what are we really looking for? And also, what's the quality of this data? And how does it relate to what we're looking for? And also, how does the system of incentives that we've set up in terms of reward and punishment, how does that distort the gathering of the data in the first place? Those are the kinds of issues that uh, I think people need to think more about. Well, let's jump into medicine here. So mm -hmm. this is one of the topics you, you spent some time with in the book. Um, when did metrics start really making a big um, dent in the decision-making of hospital administrators, of government policymakers? But just take us uh, through a broad overview before we jump in. Well, some of it, of course, has to do with the fact that medicine in the course of the late 20th century became ever more oriented towards numbers, uh, towards statistics of health uh, for for perfectly good reasons, uh, and uh, and uh, so the notion of um, of retrospective uh, retrospective trials and uh, RCTs and so on uh, became ever more important uh, in medicine, in part in part because it could genuinely help to produce uh, to produce real knowledge about what sort of things worked and what sort of things didn't, what sort of overlooked factors there were that only came out when you did these kind of broad statistical studies. And of course, so much of medicine nowadays is based on uh, scientific testing, where, you know, the number of red blood cells that you have and the number of platelets and so on matters. So in that sense, over and above this issue of what I call metric fixation, uh, numbers play an ever greater role in medicine. And then as the, as the costs of medicine went up, uh, one of the main motivations for trying to bring metrics and, re, uh, metrics and reward and, and transparency and reward and punishment into medicine was to try to contain costs 
mm-hmm. first by uh, HMOs and other management care organizations, and then increasingly by the government uh, because of its payments under Medicare and Medicaid. That that was a that was a big stimulus to it, and and then of course the entry of uh, profit-making firms into and, and private equity into the uh, into the whole healthcare system. Uh, all of that played a role in terms of uh, actors having motivations to try to measure efficacy, make uh, make public measurements, and to try to reward and punish based on standardized measures. Right. Well, medicine, um, in my practice, uh, having sort of spanned the early stages of the outcomes craze and then now some of the metrics collection and everything, mm-hmm. it seemed like we were um, always doing a lot of observation of results, but they were always results coming from us. So there was a bias there. And then we dis- then we realized we needed to get uh, the other side of the story. So we tried to bring the outcome into it to say, how are you feeling? You know, ask the patient. Yes. But that turned into a statistical thing. And then the statistics themselves became the answer. And so you get statistical scores. Everything was about scoring. And then the scores were then glommed together into a big package, which was supposedly the truth. Right. And um, the problems of, of trying to figure out how to collect this data and how to afford the, the collection, which was a real problem. And then um, being told uh, collecting it is good, and then suddenly being told if you don't collect it, you're somehow bad or evil. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we've seen all those stages that you're talking about. Um, the, the question I have as a historian, there's obviously a difference between history and data. Um, and at what point uh, is this, do you think there's going to be a point where all this data is then converted back into ideas, or are we just going to continue to be stuck with, with the metrics as the endpoint? Well, uh, ideally, metrics are, I mean, when they're used well, <laughs> they're based upon ideas. That is to mm-hmm. say, one has a notion of, uh, one has a notion of what one is looking for, and metrics and standardized measures can be really valuable depending on the ideas that go into formulating the metrics and evaluating them. So if the ideas are based upon uh, the accumulated experience and judgment of practitioners, in other words, if they play a major role in formulating what the metric should be, and then in evaluating the metrics and then thinking about how the metrics need to be uh, reevaluated over time uh, and thinking about all the things that are left out of the metrics. In other words, what are the important things that you can't measure? Uh, those are all ideas. And insofar as the ideas that go into the metrics are are good ideas, and they're based upon actual judgment and experience. Um, you know, the, the, you could have good ideas coming into the metrics and good ideas coming out of the metrics. The problem is that so often, uh, or one of the problems is that so often the metrics are formulated not on the basis of good ideas, but on the basis of measurability bias. That is the propensity to measure the things that are most readily measured and to leave out of consideration uh, the things that aren't easily measured. But maybe I should say a few words about what I mean by metric fixation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so metric fixation 
so the problem with contemporary use of metrics, as I see it, is not measurement per se, which is often a necessary and good thing if it's done properly. Uh, it's this combination of three things that are based on ideas that sound plausible when you first hear them, but when you put them together, often don't work. So the first of those ideas I've already alluded to, it's the notion that, uh, that uh, judgment is subjective, biased, uh, distorted by our limited experience. So rather than uh, using judgment based on experience, you should measure in a standardized way in order to have more effective organizations. So sometimes one finds this under the slogan, uh, you know, what gets measured gets done. So the first notion is standardized measurement of everything. The second notion, which also sounds plausible, is that people respond to incentives. So you ought to uh, reward them if their metrics are high, uh, and you ought to punish them if their metrics are low. And then the third related idea is that of transparency. That is, if you make the standardized measures of performance public in the forms of ratings or scorecards uh, and that sort of thing, then that itself will serve as an incentive for providers to, to do better or to weed out uh, bad providers. And as I say, each of these ideas are plausible on their own, but when you put them together, standardized measurement in place of judgment, uh, reward and punishment, either monetary reward and punishment or reputational reward and punishment and transparency, it often leads to dysfunction and unintended negative consequences, which is a good deal of what my book, The Tyranny of Metrics, is about. Yeah, because I mean, think about these surgeon scorecards, for example. Mm. I would venture to guess if we ask any surgeon any doctor who listens to this, if they have to choose care for their own family member or themselves, they're not going to the search and scorecards. They're using other resources, mostly their network of people that they know. Um, so they know intuitively that that's, uh, or just by experience, that that's not a good metric for making their own decisions. But the public doesn't know, always know that. Um, one right. thing that really surprised me, just briefly, the, the, the World Health Organization, um, this, the, we, we, we hear this all the time in the news about where the United States ranks uh, you know, relative to other countries. And we're certainly never number one. Um, and we're usually, you know, right in the middle or, you know, 30, well, it looks like 39th, 40th, you know, according to your book here, how is this score actually calculated? What are the, what are the inputs for this score? Cause this really surprised me, Jerry. Right. So I don't remember all of them, but the, but the most, um, one of the most important things to know about it is that, it often includes uh, considerations that you might consider to be in many ways uh, ideological uh, because they don't just measure the overall level of health. Uh, that's only 25% of the ranking scale. About half of the points are actually awarded for uh, egalitarianism. Uh, that is to say what they call health distribution and financial fairness. And they define fairness as everyone having to pay the same percentage of their income for health care. Huh. Now, health care is something that, you know, many, a lot of people care about. Uh, uh, and it's not self-evident that people who are somewhat poor shouldn't want to pay somewhat higher percentage of their income uh, because it has a higher priority for them. It provides more 
utilities. Uh, it provides more utility. So uh, there's a lot that go. So a lot of what you know seems to be an objective measure actually has a good deal of of ideology in it. Plus, it tends to leave out uh, all the situational aspects uh, of the nature of American society that may play a huge role, that actually do play a huge role in health healthcare outcomes, but are not the result of the medical system, like the propensity of people in the not too distant past to, to smoke, which then leads to you know, higher levels of, uh, of lung cancer and heart problems and so on, levels of obesity uh, and all the problems that that causes. So, so and this is often the case in metrics, whether it comes to, to medicine or education or policing, uh, people measure what goes on in the formal organization. But what's often more important in terms of the actual determinative determination of outcomes is the larger context in which these formal systems are working. Right. So, we, so for, yeah. so for example, to, for, well, for example, when it comes to hospital ratings, which the government right. does, and so does us news and world report and so on, right. um, they have all these hospital rankings and they, and one of the things that they rank them on, for example, are, uh, re, uh, readmissions within 30 days, right? So that's considered to be a, a bad thing. Now, some hospitals have higher rates than others, and one of the reasons they may do so is because they are located in places where they have patient populations who are less well-to-do, may have more fragmented families, uh, so they have less of a social support network. So if they have some hospital procedure, uh, they're more likely to need to come back to the hospital in order to get it looked at. Well, that's not the fault of the hospital. That's right. built into the larger context. And then, of, and then, of course, organizations that do these metrics try try sometimes to respond to that by building in risk factors, but those are unreliable. And plus, they can create problems of their own in terms of all kinds of ways of gaming the metrics. So there's the whole phenomenon, which I think is radically under-discussed uh, in medical journals, as far as I've been able to see. Uh, and that's the whole phenomenon of upcoding. That right. is, when, <laughs> yes. a patient, yeah, when a patient comes in, uh, whoever is doing the coding uh, for purposes of metric analysis, because there's re reward and punishment tied to that metric analysis, there's a lot of pressure on them to uh, code the patient as sicker or as more problematic or as having more comorbidities than is actually the case. And my my understanding is that, you know, residents at academic hospitals uh, have to take courses and so on to make sure that they err in the direction of upcoding rather than, God forbid, downcoding. Right. Yeah, there's this there's mysterious no software called the Charge Master just still yes. most hospitals and no one can ever really tell you exactly how this works, but it does result in usually, you know, comorbidities and, um, and, uh, other inputs will get you a higher reimbursement. Yeah. Um, it's crazy, yeah. but, but yeah, it's interesting. You discovered that through your research because it's definitely well known with our listeners. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you know, sorry, related to that is the way in which the distortions caused by, the system of reward and punishment, the distortion of the metrics, 
then figures into the analysis. Right. Uh, so, so this this information, what once you use it for reward and punishment, it becomes distorted, and then that distorted information right. may give you a very distorted sense of uh, of what's actually uh, going on. You know, not long ago, I I talked to somebody who'd been uh, the head of a of a leading cancer had a he had a leading position in a major cancer hospital and one of the things he told me was that uh one of the problems with some of these metrics including the metrics that go into say evidence-based medicine is that if a patient has cancer uh and then is operated on for the cancer and then dies the cause of death is counted as a complication of surgery rather than of cancer. Right. Uh, and that's called evidence-based medicine. That's supposed to be giving us uh, better information. Right. Yeah. We, uh, you know, the big concern that, that we in the medical profession have is that people don't necessarily recognize what the metrics really mean, and there's no way to express that to people. Like we have a, there is a score and it's, it's more institutional right now. It hasn't quite made it to the level of the physician, but that's coming for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but as you point out, there's a lot of things. Well, for instance, you look at the world rankings, mm -hmm. it um, upsets us in the medical field to think that people think that we are inferior doctors in the United States because we are ranked in the twenties or the thirties or whatever. And really, it's the medicine is probably we're one, two, or three in the world. I mean, this is where people come to be educated. It's the healthcare, the the delivery, the uh, the accessibility that makes the big difference. Is there any way? Is there any push? Do you think it's realistic to think that the consumer will ever be educated to to understand what these metrics really mean, or? Are we at a level where we are stuck with a score and the score, the 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 consumer is going to take the score uh, at its basic meaning and and we're sort of stuck in this in this deal? I uh, I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I know that one of the one of the things this this you know one of the purposes behind uh, this idea of transparency that is taking the the metrics of hospitals and of physicians and that sort of thing and making them public in terms of scorecards and so on. The idea was that this was supposed to influence consumer choice. Uh, right. But but studies that I've read show that actually it doesn't play much of a role in consumer choice, in part because when people are well, uh, they don't think very much about what particular hospital or what particular surgeon or whatever is better than another. And uh, then when they're actually ill, uh, they don't have the mental wherewithal to do that either. So uh, aside from the fact that, uh, that these uh, publicly available metrics are often uh, very distortive, um, there's the fact that actually there's a lot less use made of them than than you might think, but it, but in terms of uh, your question, uh, I think it's often very difficult for uh, consumers looking at these kind of uh, publicly available metrics to understand all the factors that went into them and why they may or not be may or may not be relevant to their particular case. Well, something else I was thinking about too is you, know, you talked about transparency a little bit in your book, but 
so many, uh, so much data now is either proprietary because it's a company has it, a hospital system has it. Um, sometimes the very way they calculate a score is proprietary because that's the business model. I mean, we think about credit scores, for example. No one can really be sure how those are calculated. We have an idea, but we're not sure. And then if you apply for life insurance, you have no idea really how they're calculating that premium. There's no way they're going to tell you. Did you, in the course of your research, Jerry, run into any roadblocks where you really wanted to get access to something and you had questions, but you couldn't answer them because of these, I don't know, these walled gardens of information? Um, did, that, did you come across that? So that wasn't an issue for me. And that's because I wasn't doing that sort of primary research. What I, what I was doing in my book is reading across a wide range of fields and studies done in a wide range of fields uh, to see what these uh, what the recurrent problems were from one that, that recurred from you know one system of metrics to another or from one uh, field to another and what the studies actually showed about the efficacy of metrics. And one of the things that was so striking was that uh, when I looked at studies in, in healthcare journals and medical journals and economics of medicine journals, uh, uh, they tended to show that there were a lot of problems or even a lack of efficacy of a lot of these metrics. But I didn't do the kind of uh, ground-level empirical investigation that would have led me into the kinds of problems that you're talking about. Sure, sure. Well, one thing you did look at was performance, you know, and incentive, incentives for performance. So yes, um, let's talk about some areas in our economy where this does seem to work. You know, one you talked about is sales, finance, mm -hmm. um, but where is it not appropriate or where is it just not effective? And this is the carrot and the stick kind of thing. Yeah. So Part of the problem with this metric fixation is that it's it's based on a conception of human motivation that is highly simplistic. It's basically based on the idea that people are doing people in a job are doing one thing and that they respond to monetary incentives to do that thing well or to or or to not do it well. And uh, both of those are, True in a few cases, but are often untrue. So if you're in a job, and there are many jobs that are based upon doing some repetitive action that don't involve, say, a lot of judgment, don't involve a lot of cooperation with others. Uh, if you're, for example, the person in charge of uh, changing windshields on a car because the car is because the windshields have been broken that's a fairly standardized operation and then you might actually count the number of windshields that that person has uh, installed in an hour and tie their uh, reward their monetary reward to that it might be effective uh, conversely it's it also could be effective uh, that is to say measurement and then reward and punishment in fields like finance where people, measure themselves in good part by how much money they make. But in many fields, uh, uh, the kinds of jobs that people have require doing more than one thing. It's not like changing a windshield. It has many different sides to it. So if you're a physician, there's the, you know, there's the interaction with your patients, of course, and that has many elements to it. Uh, in and of itself, there's the interaction with your with your colleagues. Uh, there's the interaction with your staff. 
Uh, there's the interaction with administrators in the system that you might be part of. Uh, there's, there's the fact that uh, on the one hand, you have to deal with your patients. On the other hand, you have to try to keep up in some ways with the information coming out and research coming out in your field. Uh, all, all of those are different aspects of the job. And one of the problems with metric fixation is if you measure and reward uh, just one of these, then people will, will tend to focus on that at the cost of the other parts of their job. And then, of course, the other problem is the is the issue of motivation. Many people do what they do. I mean, everybody, almost everybody does what they does, what does what they do for a living, in part because they want to make a living, in other words, for monetary motivation. But in many fields, people have additional motivations. So in medicine, for example, doctors and nurses might actually be interested in uh, maintaining health or curing the sick. Uh, and if you set up a system where all the signals to them are, you're in this for the money, and we're going to reward and punish you monetarily uh, according to the standards that we set out, uh, you might distort their motivation. So they actually start to think in those terms at the expense of their patients. So those are some of the problems, and uh, those are some of the problems involved. Yeah, and there's, you know, we're looking at just output, you know, as a unit of labor, for example, we're talking about, uh -huh. um, you know, uh, pay for service. So you're, you know, how many cases mm -hmm. a surgeon does, how many patients a, yeah. a physician sees. Um, it's not unlike someone who's fixing windshields, right? I mean, the number of patients That's coming through That's the same mentality, their, yes. Yeah, and the, yes. the number of patients mm -hmm. coming through their door, the number of surgeries they're doing, they don't really have any effect on that. It's just what they do once they come there. And just like a, a windshield repairman doesn't have any effect on, you know, the number of windshields coming through. Or do they? So, you know, there, there also is this idea of Campbell's Law and doing things to, um, to affect your numbers. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that and what you learned, you know, as it relates to fraud, unfortunately, you know, and, and maybe the motivations that stem from metric fixation. Yeah. So Campbell's Law is named for the uh, American social psychologist uh, Donald Campbell, uh, who used to teach at Northwestern. And his the law is uh, the more any quantitative social indicator is used for social decision making, the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it is intended to monitor. Another way of putting to that putting that is anything that's measured and rewarded will be gamed. And indeed, <laughs> that's what we find in field after field, that the higher the stakes are, uh, the more incentive there is to gaming, that is to trying to improve the metrics at the expense of the larger purposes of the organization. So I can't, after I finished the book, I came, I mean, I'm coming across examples of this uh, every day. Uh, but here's an example from, from your field of medicine. Uh, there was a report at the beginning in, of 2018 in the New York Times uh, about a VA hospital in, uh, in Oregon called the Roseburg Veterans Administration Medical Center. And the article begins by telling you about an 81-year-old Air Force veteran who was living alone and who came into the hospital uh, malnourished and dehydrated and with broken bones because he had f had a fall at home. And then the hospital refused to admit him 
despite the protests of physicians there. And it turned out that doctors were required to get, before admitting a patient, doctors were required to get the permission from an off-site nurse. And she, in turn, was following issues that were uh, following orders that were issued by the hospital's administrators. Huh. And, and those orders said that basically patients who had a high risk of death, usually because of advanced age, uh, were not to be admitted. They were either to be sent home or to be transferred to some other non-VA hospital. They're not and ideal it, customers, basically. Right. And the motivation behind that was the desire of the hospital's leadership to improve its performance metrics on the VA's publicly available measures. Because based on those metrics, the, uh, the hospitals are, are rewarded a certain number of stars from one to five. And in this case, the leadership of that uh, VA hospital prided itself on having raised the hospital's star ratings from one to two and was aiming higher. And it turns out that the administrators were actually uh, going to be given a bonus if they could raise the, the number of stars. So you had all these incentives in place for the administrators to game the metrics. That is, it, it, it's a lot like, it, it's sort of the obverse side of, uh, of when you have physician scorecards. Uh, surgical scorecards that often leads, or sometimes at least, leads uh, surgeons to turn away patients with comorbidities and a high risk of failure in order to maintain their high scores. So in this case, you had uh, the, the flip side of the phenomenon, that is the tendency to only take in the patients that were more likely to have positive outcomes and to uh, and to turn out those who were more likely to uh, to create a, a worse metric. And that kind of gaming uh, takes place in field after field. I mean, in, in the field of K-12 education, for example, uh, when you when schools were being measured and rewarded and punished based on the test scores of, uh, pupils in various in various grades in uh, math and in English, uh, they tended to try to get more and more students classified as having um, learning disabilities, so that they wouldn't take the test, so they wouldn't be included in it. So the weaker students wouldn't be included in the metric, uh, and and one finds this in, as I say, in almost every field. But. But in a perfect universe, um, the gaming of that system, I mean, if you are looking at your scores and you see, and the scores are accurately, accurately corrected, uh, or collected, excuse me, and, and processed, you see that, say, your hospital or you as a surgeon are not that good, your results are not that good for that thing, uh, it could be a self-learning thing. You could say, you know, I am not the best doctor for you to go to, this is a better doctor for you to go to. So, uh, so, so there is, that, that, yeah, there is some benefit from this oh, collection. Yeah, there, yes, absolutely. And and I uh, I want to make clear I'm not against the use of measurement or metrics. Uh, mm -hmm. And when the metrics are when the measurements or the metrics are used by the practitioners themselves, when they're partly right. formulated by the practitioners, and then they're used by the practitioners to compare their own performance versus that of others, then they can be highly useful, either in the way that you mentioned, that is uh, the, the practitioner can conclude, well, I'm not particularly good at this thing, I should stop doing it. Or the practitioner can say, 
you know, my, my colleague at the next hospital over, um, he seems to be really good at this. Let me consult with him and see what he's doing that I'm not. And that's, that's often the case in hospital systems, for example, where they uh, compare issues having to do with uh, levels of hospital safety uh, and infection levels and so on. Uh, uh, they can see which hospitals are more successful, which hospitals or which units are more successful than others, and then they can learn with from one another. So the use of metrics by practitioners themselves is often uh, extremely valuable. It's when it's connected to transparency to a larger public that may not understand how the metrics were gathered and what they mean, and when it's connected to reward and punishment by external parties like right. insurers, that's when it becomes problematic. Do you think there's a way? Oh, go ahead, Keith. Uh, one question: Did you think there's a way that the um, that the practitioners can control that a little bit better? Can we choose uh, whether the field is medicine or banking, what have you? Can we choose the metrics that are being measured, and will that make it more effective? In theory, that that the metrics are are more effective. Uh, well, it depends on how much discretion they have. Certainly, some of the metrics uh, are developed by professional societies of, you know, particular types of surgeons or what have you. Uh, and in that case, they're, they're likely uh, to be more useful. Uh, but I think often there's a role for practitioners to remind administrators including administrators who are in the past, who in the past were practitioners, but who mm -hmm. haven't practiced for a long time, to remind them of some of the costs of these metrics, the costs in terms of, uh, of the time of the practitioner and the diversion of time and attention by the right. practitioner to, to inputting the metrics. Uh, what, you know, one of the people who's done a tremendous amount for hospital safety and so on and, and the effectiveness of medical systems or who's been thinking about it for a long time is, is Donald Berwick. And at some point, he became the he became for a couple of years the uh, a, a leading figure in the in the uh, in the reward system of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, and and then he went back to practicing a bit, uh, and and then he said, I now see that we should probably stop measuring about half the things that we're measuring, so <laughs> things that looked attractive to him of gathering more and more data and measurement and so on. It looked attractive when he was an administrator. Uh, when he actually got back to the coal faces that were practiced, he saw the, the downside of this, the costs. And I think that's the main thing that practitioners in any field uh, can try to do to those in positions of authority, and that is to remind them of the costs and trade-offs and so on. That's why, you know, when I, when I, after I finished my book, um, I started to read more business books and I know uh, management books, and I noticed that one of the things that characterized my book was, it's a book in many ways about management seen from the perspective of the managed. Well, as mm -hmm. whereas most management books are seen just from the perspective of the managers and miss a lot as a result. Well, you almost answered some of my question here about advice to people and how to deal with this. But how yeah. was your book received once it came out, especially in your own department and at your university? And then have you have you had much feedback from some of your readers on their frustrations and some of the advice you lay out at the end of the book? 
Well, uh, uh, in terms of my own university, I I can't say that the administrators at the top of the university have taken it much to heart. Uh, <laughs> um, a lot, but I have had tremendous response from people in a, in a wide variety of fields. I mean, I get emails almost every day uh, from people in other colleges and universities, from K to 12 teachers, a lot from physicians, and not just in the United States, but uh, abroad as well, because these kinds of issues are becoming uh, more and more omnipresent uh, around the world. And in fact, the book is currently being translated into uh, eight other languages, including Chinese, and Japanese, and Korean, because a lot of these issues uh, exist in those cultures as well. Uh, plus, people have contacted me from fields that I didn't write about and hadn't thought that much about, but where it turns out metric fixation is a, is a huge deal. So people in, uh, in advertising, for example, uh, have contacted me and told me that this issue of measurability bias has entirely distorted the field of advertising because instead of advertising a brand in a wide range of venues like television and billboards and radio and so on, uh, executives at companies that are hiring advertisers now only want to pay for the things that they can measure. And what right. can they measure most easily? Clicks. Right. And that's why so much of advertising has has migrated to the internet, even though that's not necessarily the most effective form of advertising. And similarly, I've had baseball scouts contact me and so on. So huh. uh, the answer to your question is, uh, the book has had a lot of resonance in a lot of fields in a lot of countries. And every time I talk to one or another of my physicians, uh, it always leads to a uh, throwing a, a, lo a long discussion and then the throwing up of hands about the frustrations that they face in these matters. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, we're really close to the time here. Keith, do you have any other questions? No, I'm, I'm um, very uh, just so intrigued by what you've brought up and so thought-provoking and, and uh, just uh, things to look out for. I think we'll, that the medical field can take heart to at least know somebody is recognizing that there's a problem out there if, if only uh, to start looking at the metrics of what the metrics are doing, if I may say so. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. We, I mean, uh, one of the ways in which this is becoming, one of the related issues that I think is becoming more and more salient in medicine uh, is the use of... Um, uh, st uh, standardized um, evidence-based medicine, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, evidence-based medicine can be and is valuable. But the question that I, I understand is increasingly coming down the pike of how much discretion is the individual medical practitioner, that is the physician, going to be given in right. the use of this evidence-based medicine? And that, uh, how, and to what extent is the evidence-based medicine that is, you know, based on averaging a lot of people, to what extent is it relevant to the particular patient in question? And to what extent is the practitioner, the physician, going to be allowed to depart from the conclusions of the evidence-based medicine? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a growing issue in your fields. Absolutely. Well, Jerry, wrap it up. One Quick question. I don't expect a, you know, the perfect answer here, the perfect formula, but I'm just kind of curious, uh, after the course of your research here, if you were to put yourself in the shoes as a patient right now, 
um, and you're searching for a doctor or you're recommended to go see a specialist, do you, based off of what you learned here, do you think the resources exist that you could make an informed decision as a patient right now? If you still have to make your decision, how would you take, what would be your approach to, uh, right. to find that person? Yeah. So it's all, <laughs> the information is always, the information available to people is often going to be imperfect. Uh, I think what I would do, indeed what I have done, <laughs> is first of all, try to have a, a long-term relationship with a primary care physician so that you so that that person really knows you and knows the various factors involved in your in your medical condition and what your life priorities are and so on and then once once you've got that and you and based on experience you trust them then to some degree you rely on their uh, expert opinion about who's a relevant specialist in the field and then if and then in addition to that you know depending on how connected you are medically you can ask other people who you know who are in the medical field to ask people who they know about who's particularly good so if you have access to if you have that relationship of trust uh, with a primary care physician uh, and that trust is based in part on your experience of them and their judgment, uh, I think that's a very important element of it. Sure, sure. Well, that about wraps it up for us. Jerry, I have to say for sure this time, I'm not just trying to help you sell your book, but maybe I am. Um, we barely scratched the surface of this. I mean, there was so much more that you covered. We just didn't have time to, to dig into today. So I highly recommend everybody to... Uh, get online and uh, get on Amazon and take a look at this. It's, 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 it's a fantastic book. And I'm always a big fan of people coming from things more asymmetrically, you know, from a different field and looking at it from the outside. I think there's a lot of uh, perspective you can gain from that. So thanks, thanks for, thanks for they, putting the thanks effort in. And then if they read the book and, and want to augment my knowledge by conveying their own experiences to me, I'd be grateful for that too. Well, great. We'll um, we'll put that up in the show notes, and then whatever mechanism you choose for people to reach out to you, whether it's Twitter or email, you let us know, and we'll we'll put that up there too. Okay. And, um, Jerry Mueller, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, again, everybody, that's Professor Jerry Mueller, who is a pr professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington D.C. And Jerry, thank you again for carving out the time for us. It was a, a lot of fun having you on. Thanks for inviting me. All right, everyone, and take care wherever, whenever you're listening to us. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.